There we go. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see everybody here this morning. And please turn to Revelation chapter 4. And uh, while you're getting there, let me just uh, say, if you weren't here before and, and didn't know already, we have a number of young people visiting us, some younger than others, uh, from Lincoln Christian University in, uh, let's see, what state was that in again? Oh, yeah, Illinois, right? All right. How many of you are actually from in that group from Lincoln? Uh, raise your hand. Uh, four. Okay, there's four of you. No, I'm kidding. How many? How many did you guys bring? Seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah, seventeen. Thank you. Thank you for coming. They, they've come out for a week of missions to help out at uh, Pine Haven and uh, fellowship with us, but also to share in that labor, share in the work, um, and we hope to bless them even as we know they're going to bless us. So uh, make them feel. Welcome, please, because they are. All right. So do you like heaven jokes? Anybody like heaven jokes? Yeah, nobody likes heaven. Oh, three. Three of you like heaven jokes. Good. Uh, I like heaven jokes. Most of them, you know, you hear the heaven jokes. They have to do with St. Peter at the pearly gates. And while I disagree with the imagery, they can still be funny. So here's a couple of heaven jokes. A teacher, a doctor, and a lawyer all die and end up at the pearly gates. St. Peter meets them there and says, It's good to have you here, but we're a little overcrowded today. You'll each have to answer one question before I can let you in. Peter turns to the teacher and says, What was the name of the famous ship that hit an iceberg and sank in the early 1900s? The teacher smiles and says, That's easy, the Titanic. Peter lets her in. Then he turns to the doctor and says, How many people died on the Titanic? The doctor says, well, that's a tricky one, but I just saw the movie, so I know 1,503. Oh, Peter says, you're right. So he lets the doctor in, too. Then Peter turns to the lawyer and says, name them. (laughs) No lawyers here, I hope. Okay. Any nurses here? Nurses? Good. Okay. (laughs) Three nurses. Three nurses appeared before St. Peter at the pearly gates, and St. Peter said to the first, Tell me what you did on earth. Said she, I was a birthing room nurse. I helped bring hundreds of precious babies into the world. Enter, said St. Peter. Then he turned to the second, And how about you? he asked. She replied, I was a trauma unit nurse. I helped save hundreds of lives of people involved in terrible accidents. Enter, cried St. Peter, and turned to the third. I worked for an HMO, she admitted. Over the years, I saved my company hundreds of thousands of dollars by refusing extended care to people who are trying to bilk the system. You may enter, said St. Peter. You really mean it? Asked the nurse incredulously. Yes, replied St. Peter. You've been pre-approved for three days. (laughs) And finally, how many of you remember the old Farside cartoons? Far side, yeah, just a few. The older you get, the more you're going to remember. That's no, usually the other way around. But anyway, okay. So here's one about heaven. Now, Carol, this is just a joke, okay? This is just a joke. The top, the top picture so, shows the angel saying, Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. The bottom picture shows the demon saying, Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. That's just a joke. It's just a joke, okay? All right. Carol, you might guess Carol plays the accordion. Okay. There we go. And, and well, by the way. Today's message is titled, Welcome to Heaven. But it's no joke. 
Having established in chapter 1 that the focus of this entire book is on Jesus Christ, and having communicated the messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3, John now begins to relate everything else he has shown concerning future events, what he called in Revelation 1.1, the things which must soon take place. Now typically, here's where the trouble starts, okay? Now what I mean is, that starting in chapter 4 from here to the end of the book, are some of the most argued over, disagreed about, controversial, division-inducing, and just plain confusing verses of Scripture that exist. So we're not going to... No, we are going to. I'm just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Now, see, for some people, how these 19 chapters of Revelation are interpreted influences how all the rest of the Bible is to be understood. You might say that at least some people, start here and work backward when it comes to scriptural interpretation. For some, even, the interpretation of these chapters is so significant that they can't accept that anyone who sees them differently could possibly have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We sometimes call that a test of fellowship. In other words, test of fellowship, these are things that another person must believe before I will accept him or her as my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And if that sounds like a big deal, it's because it is a big deal. One example of what I think is an appropriate test of fellowship is whether a person accepts Jesus as God. That's that's pretty much bottom line for me, okay? Not just a great man, not one of the prophets, not a God for me to think that you and I are brothers in Christ or, or brother and sister in Christ, it is essential to me that you recognize Jesus as God. But when it comes to the interpretation of Revelation, well, I don't think these things should be considered a test of fellowship. Okay? And I don't want to present what I have to say about these 19 chapters in an argumentative way. And I certainly don't want, want what I say to be a source of any kind of division So I hope that you'll go through the next 19 chapters of Revelation with me, understanding that while I do have a particular viewpoint about the organization and significance of these scriptures, that really there are three key points on which I believe Christians of every viewpoint can agree. Okay, are you ready for these? Because this is what's going to hold us together through all this if, if, if we're not in agreement about everything else. These are the points about Revelation chapters 4 through 19 that I think all of us can accept. Okay? First of all, God wins. Okay? Secondly, Jesus wins. And finally, we win. Right? Okay, as Christians. Now, I never asked for this. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Whatever else we think about these 19 chapters of Revelation, I think we can all agree that these three things are true. And and here's why I hope that we can agree on this. How many of you have ever heard of the Nike company, right? Nike? Oh, practically everyone here. So now how many of you know what the word Nike means? Oh, yeah, my dad does. You know? What does it mean? No? Well, it was one. That's not what it meant. That's what she became. But the word itself just means victory. That's right. Absolutely, that's what it means. It doesn't mean just do it. It doesn't mean really expensive shoes. The word Nike is a Greek word that means victory. That used to be true. Now a lot of companies have shoes that expensive, don't they? Anyway, 
Now that word, in that form, is used only once in the New Testament. It's used in 1 John 5, 4. But the verb form of the word, which means to overcome, to conquer, to triumph, and to be the victor, is used 17 times just in the book of Revelation. And we've already seen it seven times in the letters to the seven churches. Over and over, we read, to the one who overcomes. That's the verb form of that word Nike, which means victory. Revelation is all about victory. It's all about God's victory. It's all about Jesus' victory. And it's all about our victory. Now, having said that, I think it would be good to let you know up front the particular perspective on the rest of Revelation that I have and that I will be using to present the messages on the rest of the book. Because there are four main general views of the historical timing of Revelation chapters 4 through 22. Now, we're not going to talk about the millennial viewpoints today. That comes later. But here's the four general views of the historical timing of Revelation, where these where these chapters fit in history, how they unfold in history. Okay, one is the preterist view, which says that all the events contained in Revelation took place during the late first century, possibly into the early second century A.D. As such, the events described hold no real relevance for the church today, and and no reference to the end time at all. I can't go there. I just can't. Okay. Second view is a, the historical view. The historical view says that the events of Revelation chapters 4 through 22 represent the entire chronological history of the church from the first century A.D. until the return of Jesus Christ and on into judgment and eternity beyond. According to this view, the events of chapters 4 and 5, for example, happened long ago, while the events of some of the later chapters, particularly chapters 20 through 22, have yet to take place. A third approach is the futurist view. This view holds that all the events of Revelation chapters 4 through 22 will take place at the very end of history in a relatively short period of time, ending with Christ's final return. Like the historical view, these events will happen chronologically in the order laid out in chapters 4 through 22. Now, the fourth and final approach that I'm going to present here at least is the cyclical view which says that chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation are intended to be seen as a series of parallel descriptions relevant to the whole uh, of Christian history as well as to the end time. Now that's not to say that every description covers every event of history from the first coming of Jesus until his second coming. Each unit has its own perspective and its own focus and its own purpose. But the key element of each unit is that it ends in victory for Jesus and for his followers. Now, this is how I see the structure of Revelation chapters 4 through 22. In my opinion, there are five cycles given in these chapters, each of which refers to the period of time starting with Christ's first coming and continuing through his second coming and on into eternity. And I've chosen this view primarily because of its simplicity, especially in reference to the end time. There's some other reasons as well, but that's one of the big ones. So with that understanding of what to expect in the rest of these messages about Revelation, let's continue on with Revelation chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1. John writes, After these things I looked, 
And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now through all of chapters 2 and 3, Jesus was speaking directly to the churches. The Apostle John, writer of Revelation, was merely recording those messages. Now, John starts relating his continuing experience here. The first thing he mentions in this chapter is a door standing open in heaven. And, you know, open door, that can be full of symbolism, right? We often think of an open door as an opportunity. This open door appears as an invitation, beckoning John to come see what's on the other side. Here's this open door, and he's got to pass through it so he can see what it's like. If that weren't enough, if it wasn't enough of an invitation just to have that open door, John hears a voice which he identifies as the first voice that he heard back in chapter 1. The voice like the sound of a trumpet that he mentions in Revelation 1.10. Now, just a side note here. Okay, how many of you have a red-letter NIV Bible? Red-letter NIV. Okay, red-letter ESV. Okay, all right. Red-letter NASB, New American Standard. Yeah, okay. Uh, Red-letter King James. Let's go there. Okay, that's fine. Or New King James, either one. Right. Here's the thing. If you have a red-letter New American Standard, or a red-letter King James, or a red-letter New King James, there are not red letters in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, are there? No, there are not, which I think is a mistake. John clearly describes the voice as the same one that he heard in chapter 1, and that voice is correctly identified by all three of those translations as the voice of Jesus But the New American Standard, the King James Version, New King James Version, all fail to recognize the voice of Revelation 4.1 as that of Jesus, whereas your NIV and your ESV do recognize it. And if you have an NIV red letter, it's in red, right? Okay, ESV red letter, it's in red. Okay. I, I think these other translations, I think they didn't correlate what John was saying with what they, they already determined back in chapter 1. But here's the point. It is Jesus speaking. And he invites John to come up here, which I take to mean through the open door. Now, I don't know about you. Um, we're not real social people. My wife and I, our family, you know, we don't do a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, once in a while. But I think all of us have experienced that receiving of an invitation of some kind. Don't you like to be invited to stuff? Don't you like that? You know, could be a party, could be a wedding, could be go to lunch, could be a movie, whatever it is. Isn't it fun to be invited? I mean, somebody else saying, hey, come here. I want to spend some time with you. Come over here and be with me, right? Invitations are great. And John, Jesus is inviting John, come up here. See what's through that door. This is a, this is a neat thing for John. I, and as we do this, as we go through what John relates here. Yeah, I know, there's going to be some weird stuff and there's going to be some difficult things, but I hope that you take some time just to try to imagine what he experienced and what that was like for him. What an amazing, what an amazing thing for this faithful, very faithful disciple of Jesus got to experience here. Jesus then says that he will tell John what must take place after these things. Now, That doesn't mean that Jesus won't also cover some things that have already happened. 
For example, if you, if you look over at Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, which we're going to get to after a while, not today, but if you were to look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, that verse is clearly a reference to the birth of Jesus. Well, that's an event that has already taken place, even as John is writing this. But Jesus promises to show John some things which are yet to come and which must take place. The other events, things like Jesus' birth, they provide context for the things that Jesus will reveal to John that are new. Let's go on to verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. John's still writing here. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who, was sitting on, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. In chapter 1, verse 10, John describes himself there also as being in the Spirit. He uses that description here in chapter 4, verse 2. And this seems to be a special condition which John sometimes experienced during which he received these visions from Jesus. Now, how many other times there were in his life that he never wrote those down? We don't know if he experienced the same kind of thing as he was being inspired to write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or his Gospel of John. We don't know. But that's how he describes these times. And at these times, at least in this book, he sees what is revealed to him, which is beyond the ordinary occurrences of his life. There's some special stuff happening here, right? And in that state... John is able to stand before, to, excuse me, he's able to behold a throne standing in heaven. And from John's continuing description, we believe this throne to belong to God. He makes it very clear. But that's not really the most intriguing part to me yet. At this point, I ask the question, why a throne? Why does Jesus, having come through the door so he could say, and I saw this throne... What is a throne? Well, a throne represents power. A throne represents authority. Only the king sits on the throne. And it's from his throne that he rules. This is the throne of sovereign, almighty God. And there is a, a level of authority established here. There is a, a message that he is in the presence of the one who gets to say how everything is. All right? In fact, that's the next thing John mentions, and it will become clear as we finish this chapter. John finds himself looking at God as he sits on his throne in heaven. And then he comes up with this weird description. See, this is one of the first things that we encounter. He says he describes him at like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. Well, what's that mean? Different schools have thought about jasper. Either it's clear gemstone or it's a green gemstone, although the emerald that he mentions here the rainbow's like an emerald. That's a whole other deal. <sighs> Sardius is red, by the way. Some translations say carnelian. It, it's red in appearance. And John is looking, and he sees someone on the throne, but he doesn't perceive them necessarily as having features. What he, what he gets this sensation of is perhaps overwhelming beauty. There is a, a brightness here, I think. The radiance of the rainbow that is like an emerald in appearance. I, I had uh, one commentator I was reading wanted to know, you know, well, was that rainbow oriented horizontally or was it oriented vertically? I think it was three-dimensional. Okay? I think it was like a big globe rainbow around him. Uh, whatever. But it's, it, it, here is a striking example. This is, this is the thing I think we want to take away from this. Here is a striking example of the limitations that John will experience as he tries to describe things 
that can't adequately be described with words that humans understand. Does that make sense? Okay. He's looking at this and he's saying, I've got to write this down. And he's writing down what, the best he can. And we can imagine, and it's good enough for us. I mean, the, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this. It's good enough for us to have these descriptions, but I'll bet it doesn't tell the half of it, is what I think. We might be reminded of the Apostle Paul's own vision of being caught up to heaven, recorded in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. And in that, Paul mentions hearing inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. I wonder, maybe it's those inexpressible words that uh, would adequately describe what, jo- what John was seeing as he observed God on his throne. But again, take a moment. Think about this. It's in a vision. Yes, he's in the spirit. I don't think John is physically in the presence of God. I don't know that. But anyway, he is actually seeing God himself. And he's trying to write that down. Man. This is the centerpiece of Revelation chapter 4. God on his throne. So I just, whether it's now or later, come back and reread this. Try to... Try to really appreciate what John experienced and saw in this vision. But there is more. Okay? Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, you may have already figured out. I mean, we've been at this. This is the ninth week that we've been at this in Revelation. I know you're going, yeah, it feels like it too. I don't know. Maybe you're not saying that. But anyway, maybe you've already figured that. So it's going to be a lengthy sermon series. All right? I don't want to drag it out unnecessarily, but I also want to try to do the content of the book justice, as much as I can, at least. And the reason I say that is if I try to give every theory and every interpretation about everything that is mentioned, we'll be here for years. And no, none of us want that. I don't want that. You don't want that. So I'll just tell you what I think. And if you want to talk about a different possibility, we can do that sometime. That's fine. All that to ask this question. Who are the 24 elders, right? Now, there's no clear consensus of opinion here. So we're left to pick, a, pick, a, pick your rut and stick with it, I guess. So I believe these elders to be representative of God's people of the Old Testament combined with God's people of the New Testament. God's people of the Old Testament, the Israelites, were divided into 12 tribes, descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. God's people of the New Testament, Christians, came into being through the leadership and delegated authority given to them by Jesus of the 12 apostles. Right? Both groups were people who were redeemed by God. And Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus, through his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, he made both groups, Jews and Christians, into one group. Beautiful imagery. There. And I think it's consistent with what we see here in our Sunday school time this morning. We were talking about the parallels between what God told Moses, how he was going to regard the Israelites as his chosen nation, as a, a, pre, a nation of priests, as uh, a people of his own possession. And then we turned over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and saw that ex- those exact same words used in description of 
Christians in the church. Beautiful, okay? I think there's a unity here in these two groups. Well, that's my opinion about the elders. So, John goes on to describe thunder and lightning coming out from God's throne. And I think if the throne represents God's power, perhaps the thunder and lightning demonstrate his power at work. Sometimes people get the idea that, well, even if there is a God, he's just kind of passive. You know, he's just sort of out there somewhere not doing anything. No, no, God is at work. God's power is not just a theoretical possibility. God's power is at work in unimaginably forceful and extreme ways, accomplishing his will. And I think John's getting some perception of that. And now John mentions seven lamps of fire, saying that these are the seven spirits of God. You might remember that he spoke of these seven spirits of God back in chapter 1, verse 4. Again in chapter 3, verse 1. And he mentioned specifically in 1-4 that the seven spirits are before the throne of God. I think I said then, and maybe again when we got to chapter 3, I believe that to refer to the Holy Spirit. The imagery of blazing lamps illuminating the presence of God fits well with the mission of the Holy Spirit in illuminating truth and inspiring the actual writers of the scriptures as well as indwelling us now as Christians, giving us his light. And then, man, he says something like a sea of glass. And I think I just heard John's words fail him again, okay? He didn't say it was a sea of glass. He just said that there was something that was like a sea of glass or like crystal, before the throne. Now, a sea is something vast, something unfathomably deep, and I think that's the picture that we're supposed to have here. Surrounding the throne of God, John saw something so vast that it appeared to be like an ocean, only it was clear, like glass, and perhaps something of a, he had a sense of something that could be walked on. Sounds a lot like what is described in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 and 10. We're not quite there in our Sunday school class, but here's a preview. Exodus 24, 9 and 10 says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Isn't that beautiful? And isn't that consistent? What they saw there and what John's seeing now? I love it. And remember, John is describing the spiritual presence of God the Father. And he has to do this the best he can with the only words that he has to use. Words that that we understand. And then the final description of the throne environment, if you want to call it that, is that there are four living creatures there. Now we're going to talk more about them in the next section. But here he says that they were full of eyes in front and behind. That's weird. Okay? Like flies, right, Brooke? Full of eyes in front and behind. No, it's not like flies. This is different. Matter of fact, it's a lot like, remarkably like, the description of the living beings of Ezekiel chapter 1. Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 1 at some point. And there, you'll see these four living creatures. And their eyes are said to be on wheels. That possibility is not excluded here. John just doesn't mention it, if that's the case. But in both cases, they are heavenly beings being perceived as part of a vision. And we'll talk more about them here in just a second, because the next verses speak more about them. Verse 7. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. 
and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And I would say that historically, in the scriptures, we've seen these before. John continues to describe the living creatures in verses 7 and 8. These descriptions are very much like what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1, combined with what Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel describes the creatures as each having four faces. John merely describes them as having four different faces altogether. Now again, maybe these aren't exactly the same creatures, but I don't think the two descriptions have to be contradictory. I think they could be describing exactly the same living creatures. In John's vision, the creatures have six wings apiece, as do the seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel just doesn't mention wings. And we've heard what they have to say. In Isaiah 6, 3, those seraphim speak with these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And while those aren't all the same words, as the ones John heard the living creatures say, they are some of the same words and they're some of the important ones. What John records hearing is this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. Now in the Bible, whenever you see the same thing said three times in a row, it almost always means you better pay attention because this is important. In the statement, holy, 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 now some see a reference there to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I think that's possible. But the main emphasis here is on the fact that God is holy. And not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is perfect, complete, faultless. It is greater than any holiness we possess. Rick, I told you we were going to talk about this. Christians in the Bible, but sometimes in, in some of Paul's letters when he's writing to the different churches, Christians in the Bible are sometimes referred to as saints. And to the saints in Ephesus, right? Or whatever. But the literal meaning of that word, the saints, is the holy ones. That's you. That's me. We talk about St. Don here. There's my mom, St. Nancy, over there. Of course, I mean, that goes without saying, right? That's my mom, so it has to be. How do you feel about that? Comfortable with that designation for you? Put your name in there, St. Brittany. Put your name in there, St. Levi, right? You good with that? Well, that's you. But the difference is this. Your holiness and my holiness is not inherent to us. It is imparted to us. God's holiness is his own. The only way we are holy is because he is holy, and he's even more than that. His thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways, and all his ways are perfect and just and righteous and true. He is holy, holy, holy. Which leads us to this in verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crown before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And the creatures worship God. And it leads us to another question. So what is worship? We often describe what we did here in the first part of the service as worship. The act of singing. Singing songs of praise. Singing songs of recognition about who God is. Absolutely. That is one form of worship. Sometimes it's helpful to go back into history a little bit. This is from the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary. You might be not too surprised to find out there are differences between Webster's Dictionary then and Webster's Dictionary now. But in the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, worship means to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. That's good, but there's more. And also to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. I like to say that worship is the sincere acknowledgement of and submission to who God really is. In worship, we declare this. You are God Almighty, creator of all, redeemer of all, and I accept your authority in my life. In other words, I'm saying you are my God. The living creatures Give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the eternal one, as John describes him. And not just them, but the 24 elders as well. Now, if I'm correct about the 24 elders representing all of God's people from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, all the way up to and including Christians today, right? Then it is only fitting fitting that they would bow down and worship God. And crowns, this whole business of crowns, Some people make an entire theology out of it. I'm not going to go there, but here's what I think. Crowns represent several things. They can represent power, and they can represent authority. They can represent glory and honor and status and maybe even ability. But the elders cast their crown before the throne of God, and here's what I think they're doing. In essence, they're saying that whatever power, authority, glory, honor, status, ability they possess is nothing compared to what God possesses. And they acknowledge that of him, his complete superiority, his ultimate authority over them. That's worship. And that is exactly the declaration that they make. They say that worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. It's not about us, God. It's all about you. And why? Well, one good reason, and Rick was pointing this out this morning in our opening exercise time, one good reason is that he is the creator of all things. Only God has the power to bring into existence something from nothing. Everything that exists and everyone that exists owes its existence to God. Nothing exists without him having brought it into being. And he did so because it was his will to do so. He was not obligated to do it. He did it because he wanted to do it. Why did he create the heavens and the earth in the beginning? Why did he set apart Israel as a chosen nation? Why did he send his one and only son to redeem mankind? Why did he establish a relationship with those who would follow Jesus that included 
his Holy Spirit living within them. Because he had to? No, because he wanted to. It was his will. He was not restrained in what he did. He made everything exactly the way he wanted to. And while man has allowed sin to enter the world and corrupt it, God's creation, as God made it, and that includes you, as God made you, God's creation, as God made it, is perfect in every way. By his will were all things created, and for that, along with many other things, but at least for that, God deserves glory, honor, and praise. He is worthy of worship. Who do you worship? We, we, we don't do this anywhere else. Well, sometimes we do. We do things that look like that. We get together and we sing songs about, or that are from people, you know, and we're doing that in recognition of people and and really, when we stop to think about it, maybe that's not such a great activity. We do this for God. And when, what we do here at church, this is the only time we do that in, in sincerity, in that purpose. God alone is worthy of worship. One of the things, as a matter of fact, earlier I talked about how important it is that I think that you accept Jesus as God, if, if we're going to be brother and sister in Christ. You know, Jesus accepted the worship of other people. He let other people worship him. That was one way he stated of himself that he called himself God. He accepted the worship of others. Anyway, so I said earlier that God is the centerpiece, God on the throne. God is the centerpiece of Revelation chapter 4. And I say that again now because I want us to remember that when Jesus shows heaven to John, whatever else we see, the first thing And I think the most important thing that John saw, the focal point of John's entire account, is God. And that has some serious implications for us right now. Now let's make a short list of some of the things that we discovered in Revelation chapter 4. First of all, God is the focus. Let's never, as whatever we want to do as we study Revelation, think about it, meditate on it, talk about it, pray about it. Let's never try to make this book all about us because it's all about him. Secondly, his throne is powerful and God is at work in our lives. He's not a passive God standing off aloof somewhere, not involved. He's involved. He's working today. His appearance is indescribable. Elvin was searching for words here during the communion time, to talk about his appearance, Jesus' appearance. He came as a man who was not apparently all that attractive, especially not when he got to that point where he was being beaten and scourged and crucified. But God and Jesus, in their own, they're beautiful, majestic, glorious. I think those even were some of the words that Elvin used. And what else can you say? I run out of words too, okay? His people of all times surround him, and those who belong to him will be in his presence. That's a pretty important point. We don't just live this life and have this relationship with him for now. There's more to come. The angels, excuse me, the Holy Spirit, sheds God's light. God hasn't left us on our own. His Holy Spirit illuminates his truth, teaches us what we need. The angels worship him. They declare the holiness and the eternal nature of God. His people of all times worship him. They recognize that they belong to God and they submit to his authority. And that includes us. I hope we've gotten that. He alone is worthy of worship. 
God Almighty is the creator of all that exists. He alone is God. There is none like him. And his will is done. You remember Jesus in the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He gives us some choices. But there in this environment that John's witnessing right now, God's will is done. And God's will will be done. In the end, ultimately, his will will be complete. The parts that he has not let go of intentionally, like our choices. I speak to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, we are in the presence of God now. As we are part of his church, as we are part of the body of Christ, we are in the presence of God now. I challenge you to make your worship of him genuine, fervent, comprehensive, and consistent. Let the reality of who he is as almighty God and the fact that you acknowledge that he is your God, that you belong to him, direct everything that you say and do. Recognize his holiness and aspire to be holy yourselves because he is holy. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, never having fully entered into that saving relationship that only he can provide, I have to ask, are you ready to take that step today? Even as Jesus invited John to go through the open door to get a glimpse of heaven, Jesus invites you to come to him so heaven can be yours for eternity. If you recognize that your sin has separated you from God, but you sincerely desire for your life to take a different direction, God's direction, we call that repentance, and you're willing to confess your faith here this morning and to be immersed into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, then please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.